This is the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Thank you for listening. Yahoo Finance brought together some of the best minds in business for the All Market Summit held at the Oath Times Square office in New York City and via global live stream. This marquee event explored new challenges presented by the rapidly changing global economy. The following is a live panel from that day. Enjoy. Welcome, Mark. Great. So healthcare, that's the big topic of the day. Will there be healthcare reform or not? And at whose expense? So it's great to have you, Mark Bertolini, CEO of Aetna, to discuss. Now, Mark, President Trump said recently that he doesn't want insurance companies making any more money. And he also pointed to how the stock prices have performed since Obamacare began. So I'd like to get your reaction to that comment. Well, all I know is we've lost three quarters of a billion dollars. So we didn't get any of that money that everybody was making off of the Affordable Care Act. As a matter of fact, nobody made any money. So I think um, it's all part of politics. And I think uh, the only way we're going to move forward on health care reform that's going to matter is if we get a bipartisan bill. Because there has never been a social program as large as this that's not been passed by a bipartisan Congress because every year they need to get tweaked. So Medicare, Medicaid, even Social Security gets tweaked every year. And that requires both sides of the aisle to work together. And because of the way the bill was passed, we just don't have that kind of dialogue. For seven years, this bill, the ACA, has sat stagnant. And as a result, it's failing. And you know, when we get to a place where it's a bipartisan bill, I think we'll be in a much better place. And so I've been advocating for that, and we'll continue to. Well, if we set politics aside for a minute, what are some common sense, basic changes that can be made to our healthcare system that you think everyone on both sides of the aisle could agree on? So let's not make it about healthcare. Let's make it about cost um, first and start with that. So we have 50% of our population in the United States that consumes 86% of the healthcare dollars in the United States, they have all have at least one chronic disease. So, you know, you have 50% of the population consuming only 14%. And that's of the $3.2 trillion. The United States spends more than anybody. <clears throat> However, when you add together our healthcare spend and our social spend, we are now 11th among the OECD nations. We are the only nation that spends more than 40% on healthcare. Um, the rest of the nations spend less than 40% on healthcare. The United States spends 62%. So our lack of investment in social determinants of health has led to a ranking of we are number 34 out of 34 in the OECD nations from the standpoint of value. So this is a value problem. And we have a far too expensive system providing too little um, focus on creating productive, viable, happy people, um, which I think is the real definition of health. The World Health Organization in 1948 defined health not as the absence of disease, but as the social, physical, and um, psychological well-being of the individual. And we have a healthcare system that focuses on the sick. Well, 34, that's certainly a startling uh, number. Now, when you look around the world, is there a healthcare system out there that you look to and wish we could emulate? Well, every, every, organ, every country has a problem with healthcare right now, except for the Scandinavian countries. Um, the Scandinavian countries have a fairly homogenous population. 
um, a fairly homogenous um, income structure. Um, and as a result, um, they believe that what they pay on healthcare is appropriate and everybody gets pretty much the same thing. Now, if we could make that happen in the United States, that would be something worthwhile, but that would be a difficult investment for us to move away from where we are now to all the way to that. Now, turning back to DC, the Trump administration came in with this pledge to collaborate more with the business community and business leaders. To what extent and to what, or yeah, to what extent have you seen that or not seen that throughout this, um, throughout the negotiations for healthcare reform? We've seen a lot of conversation. Um, there's actually in the um, Alexander Murray bill, a lot of what the industry thinks we can do to fix the Affordable Care Act and get or stabilize it, get more people covered over time. Unfortunately, um, we're now heading into the 18 election and so politics reigns supreme on how we think about it. And so we're not doing the work of the people, we're, we're focused on re-election. Now, let's talk about how we can change the healthcare system. Um, but before we get into that, I think it would be great for our audience to hear your own background, how that has shaped how you view healthcare and the future of the healthcare system. So I, I grew up in a family of, of six children. I'm the oldest of six. Um, we grew up in a thousand square foot house on the east side of Detroit. Um, you know, we had insurance part time during the year. We didn't have it year round because um, my dad was a pattern maker in the auto industry. But back then, my mom worked as a nurse in a pediatrician's office, so she was our healthcare system. Um, she used to bring it all home from her for the pediatrician, chase us down the street, give us our vaccines in front of the neighbors um, on the front lawn. And, um, and so, but it was easier to not have insurance back in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, I grew up knowing I was always gonna do a little bit better than my dad. Um, I went to work in the auto plants and I worked doing rear axle differential housing assembly on the Mercury Bobcat at Ford Sterling Gear and Axle and did that really well. Made a lot of money. I was pulling in almost 60 grand a year at the age of 21. Um, and they got in a fight with my union steward over work rules um, and said, how do I get your job? And he said, kid, you need a degree. So that's when I decided to go back to school after I'd flunked out of Wayne State twice. Um, and you know, through a whole bunch of luck um, and hard work, here I am. Um, so in that journey, I also confronted the healthcare system in many different ways. My son had what was considered then a terminal cancer, and so I quit my job and lived with him in the hospital for a year while he fought that cancer. He's now 31, and um, I have a beautiful granddaughter, and he's on to his career. Um, and, um, and then I broke my neck a year after he got out of the hospital and ended up um, with you know a paralyzed left arm and all sorts of neuropathy, so I saw how the healthcare system sort of fixed you, um, but once they were done fixing the issue, the thing that you were sick with, they threw you back into the world. And for me, it was here's your long-term letter for long-term disability, and here's your oxycontin, Dilaudid, fentanyl. I had seven different narcotics I was on at one point in time, and you know, collect your long-term disability and you're lucky to be alive, you should be dead. So, I so said that's not kind of how you want to live. And so as, we, as I came back to work and recovered from my injury, I don't take any opioids. I use uh, cranial sacral therapy and um, yoga and mindfulness to control my pain. Um, and an occasional McAllen, um, neat, um, in the evening. Um, with a couple aspirin, um, and I think you know, that that is how I manage my pain. But I learned that 
The system was really oriented toward a warranty system. You're broken, present your card, get fixed. Versus a system that said, are we returning to society a productive and viable human being that can contribute to society going forward and feel good about who they are? So it sounds like the system is broken. So what needs to change and what's standing in the way? So I think we should define health as a healthy person is productive. A productive person is socially, psychologically, economically, and physically viable, and viable people are happy. And I can't, I think, you know, as we look at the opioid epidemic across America now, where Americans consume 80% of all the opioids produced in the world, enough to keep every American stoned for six weeks, um, we have a society that's not happy. And I think that should be the de definition. If we were productive and viable, we would be happy and we'd be much more civil and we treat each other with a lot more respect than we see in the public dialogue today, particularly in Washington. So this idea of focusing on that as the definition would then say, we shouldn't wait till people are broken. We should be engaging them closest to home. We should move from the exam table where you spend 15 minutes with a doctor talking about a thing and lying to the doctor most of the time about whether or not you're doing things. Well, yeah, my diet's great, doc, all the time, perfect. Um, you know, I exercise 30 minutes every day, religiously. Uh, my doctor actually brought out a wine glass at one visit and said, why don't you draw a line on this wine glass? Because you keep telling me you drink two glasses of wine, and we discovered I was really doing five. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and, and so this idea of actually having your doctor spend time with you about what, what's your life like, um, really doesn't happen. So we've got to get from the exam table to the kitchen table where you hear about everything. You know, who's getting divorced, who got a new car, who moved, who got a new job, who's pregnant, who's getting married, who's getting divorced. And it's at that kitchen table you learn about the real existence of an individual and how it impacts their life. Because when we look at life expectancy today, 10% is related to the $3.2 trillion we spend on care. 30% is related to your genetic code and the rest is related to where you live. It's called the social determinants of health and the lifestyle impacts of it. 60% of life expectancy is now defined by your zip code. So we have zip codes in Boston, we have zip codes in, in, in the Bronx, in Chicago, in Detroit, my hometown in Baltimore, where people living in one zip code have a 15 to 20 year less life expectancy than the zip code next door. So and so we have a problem. So explain more, how does this work? It sounds like you're gonna to have to go into the home, right. be there at the kitchen table. What does that look like and, and how do you get people to, to agree to this? So we can't knock on the door and say, hey, we're here from Aetna, we're here to help. It's like from the IRS, right? We wanna come and have dinner, won't work. Um, we do have some relationships like that where we spend a lot of time with the patients. So we've just launched a program with Meals on Wheels. Um, Ellie Hollander came up to me after a a talk I gave and said, I can help you. And so we helped them build an app, which we're piloting in a couple of markets. And there are two million Meals on Wheels volunteers that are in homes four to five times a week. And they know these people and they're friends with these people. And actually what they'll tell you is, it's not about the meal, it's about the company. And we're gonna ask them, with the permission of the individual, to let us know if there's a change in, in mental capacity, mobility, access, food, water, heat. Because the bottom line is all of that is a lot cheaper for us to pay for than one visit to the ER. And so if they can notify us, then we can get somebody to the house and we can solve that problem. If they need an Uber ride to the senior center to play bridge or a follow-up visit to the doctor or they need fuel assistance, 
or they need you know, fresh water or food in the house on a regular basis, I'd rather pay for that because we're gonna avoid that ER visit and in the current system, meals are cheaper than ER visits. Well, it sounds like you mentioned Uber, so what kind of role can technology play in this and what excites you in terms of technology as it relates to healthcare? So I'll make this plea to Ollie. We always talk about technology as being an answer. It's not. Technology is a tool. Where technology comes into play is when it creates an experience for the customer that changes their behavior and how they buy. Customers disrupt markets, not companies. Amazon isn't disrupting anything. They're creating an offering through technology that customers want and will repeatedly use. And therefore, they're challenging every other in every industry they get into because they create a convenient, high-quality experience that fits a customer's needs. So if you think about that in healthcare, who wants to go to the doctor's office all the time? Who wants to spend time in an ER? Wouldn't it be better if there was somebody who could come into your home, spend some time with you, make you uh, help understand what you need, which one of us wouldn't want to notify somebody that we have a friend, family, or neighbor who needs help? And let's get them the help. Let's invest in that social determinant. So technology supports our delivery of that. Technology supports our identification of the demand. Technology supports the cost of supplying it and making it happen. It is not the disruptor in and of itself. It's a tool. The last time we spoke, we had discussed automation and how that will actually make the workday shorter, freeing up time. Right. So how does that play into this? So I, you know, I also um, have a role on the um, Verizon Board of Directors and we're working with fifth generation technology, 5G, and that has the opportunity to change a lot of things for people in the device they carry around every day and the ability of the tool to be useful. And so when you think about that and its impact on work, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to work on the number of hours anymore? We worked on the work, we got paid on the work provided. We had more leisure time, which we could then use in the economy to stimulate the economy, spend time in community, and make our lives happier, right? And so this technology should be thought of as a way for us to live a better life if we use it right instead of staring at it all day long. I'm always amused that couples who go to dinner together, candlelight, and they're both looking at their phones sitting across the table from one another. What's wrong with that picture? And so there are now tools. I'm also on Ariana Huffington's Thrive Board about, you know, let's put this thing away for a while. Let's actually spend time together. Let's actually talk to one another for a change. And I think we need to use the technology right, but I think that technology will allow through augmented reality, artificial intelligence, a lot of things will be easier to do so we have to find a way to change the nature of work. We'll have more gig economy employees who should get paid on the work they provide, can spend more time in their communities. Now Aetna has about half of its employees working from home full time. So they're there for the family, they're there for the kids. Um, they can be engaged in the community without having to pollute the environment. We took you know, tens of dozens of metric tons of carbon out of the environment by not having people drive to work every day. Now, you've been really vocal about how the capitalist model needs to change. What role should corporations play in society? So when I was in school, I swore I was never going to wear wingtip shoes or a tie or drive a station wagon, and I was never going to work for the man. And now I'm the man. So 
This idea of what can we do to change the capitalist model is a really important one. We have huge income disparity in our country. Um, we have, you know, um, if, you ha if you're investing in the stock market, you can make a lot of money. Um, if you're not, and you're making a wage, it's not enough. So if you look at wages in America, they're up 0.2% since 1973. 0.2%, 10% overall, 0.2% on an annual basis. So living wage isn't there. So our, our own employees, we took minimum wage from 12 to $16 an hour. We wiped out their health care costs if they were below 300% of the federal poverty level. We now repay their student loans up to $10,000 over 10 years. We doubled their tuition reimbursement. We pay them $300 to sleep two, seven and a half hours, 20 nights in a row. Because if they get a good night's sleep, they'll keep doing it, and they come to work better prepared. And we have pet therapy in all of our offices now. So, you know, it's like a, where they bring in pets. People want to bring in little ponies. I draw the line of ponies, but rabbits, <laughs> cats, and dogs. And people line up to go in and pet these animals. Our employee engagement scores are up 1,200 basis points. Um, we spend probably close to 50 to $60 million a year doing it than we wouldn't otherwise would have spent. And we have, you know, our stock price has more than tripled since we did it. So I, don't, I think it's working. And, and I think what we want to do for our employees is make sure that they find our place, a vibrant place to work, a place where they have opportunity, and they're not worried about talking to bill collectors on break, which is what was happening before. Well, you know, Mark, the, the challenge for public company CEOs is always balancing short-term results, quote, making the numbers, doing enough buybacks, all while creating long-term shareholder value. So can you talk a bit about like your theory about how to balance the two? <laughs> Profit is an outcome of a well-run business based on sound business fundamentals and a, and a, and, and a well-educated and happy workforce. You don't manage a bottom line. Anybody who manages a bottom line is making a big mistake. That's why a lot of companies aren't around for a long time. So if you have solid business fundamentals, which means you invest in your workforce, you invest in your customers, they keep coming back, your lifetime value of your customer grows, the revenue continues to grow, that generates earnings that get invested back in the business, because that's what we do with our earnings. We don't write a check out to all of our shareholders for the amount of earnings per share they got. That goes back in the business. And we reinvest in the business, and shareholders make money by buying low and selling high with each other doesn't even impact our economics as a company. And so a well-run business with solid business fundamentals creates an economic flywheel that allows us to reinvest in our business, grow our company, and people say, hey, you know what, they're gonna be around for a while, they're gonna grow. And so long-term is the best way to go. We need some help with the government in the way they think about it. We now have a long-term capital gains tax that happens on day 366, I think that's wrong. We should have a long-term capital gains tax that goes from 100% in the first year down to 20 or zero over eight years. So then I'm incented to keep the company invested for eight years. We need to think about depreciating our investments in people like we depreciate our investments in machines. Because right now we treat machines better than we do people in our businesses. If you have an option to put it in a machine and depreciate it over five to 10 years, you're gonna do that versus put it into training for your employee base. That should be eliminated. We should either allow for depreciation in employee investment or don't allow for depreciation on technology and machine investment. Things like that need to change in order for us to get our head right about long-termism. You know, Larry Fink at BlackRock, he's all over this, he gets it. 
And CEOs that don't have shareholders that support it should change their shareholder base. Mark Bartolini, CEO of Aetna, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you, Julie. Good to see you. Thank you again for listening to the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts.